do know the mechanisms that might not tell us exactly what to do tomorrow to study, but it will give us a better sense of what studying means, what learning means, and how we can take agency over that process. Welcome to the Medical Menemist Podcast, your source for memory techniques and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. What are you doing correctly or incorrectly in your studies? Today's episode is going to condense some of the top highlights from dozens of episodes in 2019. This is going to be the first of mini series to bring you the top episodes and the top highlights from each interview in 2019. Do you know the most efficient way to set up your study schedule? Do you know what preparatory skills and strategies to use before you even start studying? How about tips on group studies, on advanced note-taking, or flashcard techniques? How about the most evidence-based study strategies that you can start using now, and some of the obstacles you might want to avoid? Those and more will be in this episode. Luckily, all this information is evergreen, so we can always work to improve on our abilities and skills. Even if you listen to every episode in 2019, this recap can be invaluable to remind you of some of the topics and techniques discussed. Before we get into the episode, I do want to thank everyone for sharing this podcast and subscribing to it. We've seen a lot of growth since our start in 2019 with about an average of 20 downloads per episode near the beginning to around 1,200 now. Keep sharing this with your friends, with your colleagues, so we can keep growing. And now, on to today's show. So the first topic we are going to cover today is efficiency. It's time management, the effective time management and efficiency of our study sessions in particular. After all, we can waste minutes each day, hours each week, and even days each year being less efficient with how we plan and schedule our study. Your school advisors and even instructors might not be aware of just how much time it takes for the traditional learning methods in a modern medical class. This can take hours and hours a day and just really bog you down. This is something that Dr. David Larson, author of Medical School 2.0, ran into when he was studying as well. Okay, so med school, kind of as I mentioned, it was, and I think a lot of people have been through this experience where you feel pretty good about yourself, your studies, you made it into med school, and then all of a sudden you're with a group of peers who have all done the same, and keeping up becomes even more difficult. And I was really struggling with just the quantity of workload and hours of lecture and labs and stopped exercising, stopped kind of cooking, I was eating less healthy, started to have study time budge into sleep time, so I was sleeping less and just feeling worse and worse tried to look for help. I went, you know, they had a PhD educational psychologist. You know, I think she was saying to read a half an hour to an hour pre-read per lecture and then study half an hour to an hour per lecture afterwards. And you add it all up. If you're in eight hours of lecture, even four hours, it's just a crazy work day. But I started by doing that and taking those recommendations. And like I told you, I burned out in about three months. And I think the defining moment was when I worked my butt off got the first test results back, and it was kind of a low C. So after that, I'm like, oh, shoot, this isn't going to work. And so I started talking to some of the third and fourth year students who seemed like they had good grades, but also more balanced lifestyles. 
it was really amazing what I started to find out. I mean, one person, the first time I asked someone, they turned me on, they're like, oh, have you heard of Afshin's notes? So just that one resource alone, you know, saved an incredible amount of time. So it was the concept that there's got to be a better way and then asking for help and thinking outside the box, realizing that there's probably a solution out there that I'm not aware of. So think about that for a second. How are you thinking outside the box? Well, if you're listening to this podcast and you've listened to many past episodes, you probably have a lot of skills, tips, and tricks that other students might not have that other instructors might not be teaching. So this resource is one of those potential outside-the-box tools in your tool chest. But always realize that there are new tips, new tricks, new techniques that you can learn and you can teach yourself, and we hope to bring those to you in this show. But we know students can sometimes get stuck in their ways. This worked for me before, so I want to stay with it. I want to stick with the path I'm used to, I'm familiar with. And that can be an issue as well. As Alex Mullen and Kathy Chen explained in episode three. There's this kind of psychological concept called the tyranny of success, which we kind of have come across a lot, which basically means that people who have had success throughout their life are that much more resistant to changing their habits. And so certainly this applies to medical learners. You know, you come into medicine, you've done well in high school, you've done well in college, you've gotten into medical school, you think you know what you're doing. Um, and then a lot of you know people, including us, yeah. you find that you're not really ready for medicine, you don't have the right tools, um, or the right strategies to tackle it properly. And so you know, try to resist that tyranny of success and really kind of go after something new and be, be, be okay with kind of experimenting a little bit. So we really don't want this tyranny of success to affect us to negatively influence our study skills approach. And there are a few things that we can do to really combat this. Obviously, we can try the new things that are always discussed in this show, such as mnemonics and rehearsal practice. But maybe taking a step back and getting some more basic skills down, maybe some that we have forgotten or were never taught, might be a good place to start. For instance, Guinness Book record setter Howard Berg really says that there are five things that you need to know in order to learn faster. And I think we all want to learn faster. So let's take a note from his book and learn to use these five things in our studies. Normally, when you do group work, and I know it's not uncommon for study groups to form in a medical environment because of the complexity, you kind of feed off of each other. And so you'd say, I'll read chapter one, you read chapter two, so-and-so reads three, another one four, and somebody doesn't do their work. And you end up doing a lot and you'll get much back. So we don't do that. My school, what we did, person in the group in the first chapter learns all the words. The second person learns all the names and what they did. And you put these in a table, you know, the word and the meaning, the person and what they did. The third person, the numbers, dates, statistics, and formula. The fourth person looks for the five main ideas in each section. And the fifth person looks for every question and finds the answer. He goes on to say that in another chapter, the next section, you can rotate. So each member of this group can take on a different responsibility. And even though we don't necessarily need to know the individual's names or certain dates in medicine, we can still use this process to pick out things that are important to us in medicine, such as vocabulary terms, physiology equations, medication classes, categories of disease or mechanisms of action, or other categorical chunks that might be important to our studies. For the full 
episodes. You can check out David Larson from episode one, Alex Mullen and Kathy Chan of Mullen Memory from episodes two and three, and the fastest reader in the world, Howard Berg, in episodes five and six by going to freemeded.org slash podcasts. I also want to mention, since I haven't for a few episodes now, that we also have another podcast, the One Minute Preceptor Podcast. So do go check that out as well. We have a lot of interesting interviews from educators and preceptors to guide you into your clinical medical rotations. It's never too early to learn those tips and tricks for asking for letters of recommendation or resources that are recommended for you before you start your clinical rotations. So go download the One Minute Preceptor right now. Our next section, we're going to cover preparation for our studies. Abby Marks Beal has a very simple recommendation for this. So I talk about a thing called purpose and responsibility. Why are you reading this and what do you need it for? So if you can come up, why am I reading this? Because I have an exam on Friday on this topic. And then what are you reading for? I need to know vocabulary. I need to know concepts. I need to know the, the process or the protocol. And so this way, at least you now know, based on your class, what your professor is saying you're going to be tested on or what you know from the experience you've had with that professor. And so you read according to that. If it starts going into a section on like the history of breathing tubes and you're like, it really doesn't apply to what you're doing, don't spend a lot of time on it. Spend time, you know, it's about focusing the brain. Why are you reading it? What do you need it for? We will hear more from her and her Revit Up speed reading course in episode three of this miniseries. But first, let's explore how even mental preparation can be such a huge benefit to our studies and how these visualizations can actually affect how our brain works, what hormones it produces, how it functions. And this is where we begin our discussion on metacognition from Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath. Do know the mechanisms that might not tell us exactly what to do tomorrow to study, but it will give us a better sense of what studying means, what learning means, and how we can take agency over that process. So we know the brain changes. And for a long time, we used to speak about the brain changing only in response to the environment. So change your context, change your behaviors, change your input, and the brain will change to kind of match that input. We now know that you don't even have to get off of your bum to change the brain. As far as your brain is concerned, there's no hard line between what you think and what you do. And this is why in sports, visualization is such a big thing. For a long time, we used to say, okay, before a big match, fire yourself up. You know, think of something you that gets you angry, uh, and then take that anger out onto the field and and that didn't really improve performance at all. So we're like, hmm, what else could we do? We've now realized that, no, don't just fire yourself up. If you visualize yourself swimming a perfect lap, running a perfect race, skiing a perfect hill, just by thinking about it, putting yourself in that position, your brain starts to change as though you just swam that perfect lap, as though you just ran that perfect race. So you don't even have to move just by first person imagining yourself doing something, the brain changes as though you did it. So now we've got this incredible feedback mechanism where our stories, our thoughts, our concepts feedback and change our perception, change our abilities, our reality in a sense. So think about how you might be able to use this concept in your studies. How can you visualize your success? What can you visualize when preparing for studying or before a class or before an exam? that can maybe increase your actual abilities during that event. 
it's amazing to see just what our minds, what our mental abilities can do to the rest of our body and to our actual capabilities. So here's one example from Dr. Wendell Cole of the Convos with Cole podcast on how he schedules his practice sessions, how he schedules his study plan, and how maybe using the last concept of visualizing this beforehand can make you more successful on keeping on track and not skipping over sections and really making it as efficient as possible. If you're going over something in class tomorrow, today you take 15 minutes and you just kind of just do a broad overview. You know, you might look at a YouTube video, you know, something passive, something not too much. You know, you might just read something over the topic that takes nothing but 10 or 15 minutes. So that's the first time you're going through the topic. The second time you're going through the topic is when you're in actual class, because now you looked at the broad overview. So now you know what it's talking about. So now you can better pay attention and kind of ask more informed questions. That's one of the things that we not always take for granted, but we don't necessarily do in class. You know, we may be on like social media, Instagram and Facebook while we're in class versus actually paying attention and and trying to get the most out of the lecture because that's what they're there for. You know, your professors are there to teach you. So if you actually take that class time and use it as study time, that's less work that you have to do outside of medical school. That's like, that's a, that should be like another hour of studying right there while you're in the classroom, right? So then that'll be the second time you go over the information. And later on that evening, say you go over the same thing for, let's say 45 minutes. So now within a 24 hours, you've seen the same information three different times and you've understood it at three different levels. One was on a superficial level, one was a little bit more in depth, and then one was kind of getting into the details later on that evening when you looked at it. Then the next day, before you study everything that you learned that day, you take 15 minutes to look over the information that you learned yesterday, right? So then that'll be your fourth pass with information. And then the day after that, say you may take 10 minutes or so to go through it because now you've seen it a couple of times, you recognize, like you you remember it, so it doesn't take you as long to get through it. And And it's that continuous review at the beginning of each study session, which will help you remember the information longer. Even though your study plan might not exactly follow Dr. Cole's, these are some very useful techniques and ways to think about preparing for our study sessions. Maybe you didn't think that you needed that many repetitions of the material to get it. But space repetition is extremely important and something we will come back to a lot in this mini-series. So take some of the tips from Dr. Cole and see how those can be implemented in your own study schedule currently. We have one last speaker for this preparation part, and that is Dr. Hoda Mustafa from the American University in Cairo. In the following clips, she'll explain to us her thoughts on how educators should approach these, how students should approach these types of topics, and get into design thinking, which can really help us prepare for the material to come. And I started to think about how we think and what is the process of our thinking, where I was teaching the scientific thinking course, which focused on process and focused on not the product of what we want to learn, but how we want to learn it. I think there's a misconception or an assumption on the part of educators in the higher education space that students come in with these thinking skills, that they have learned them, quote unquote, learned them by studying the sciences, by learning about language arts, by studying history and all these things. But I think that students don't learn how to make connections between the different 
topics. They may not necessarily learn how to navigate and how to think in different ways. For example, things like divergent and convergent thinking, things like iterative thinking, parallel thinking, these different modes of thinking. It's not something we're born with. We have to learn how to think in these various ways. In the last few years, I've been exploring design thinking, which is a human-centered approach to problem solving. And it involves really understanding the space in which a problem lies. So, for example, if you are in a large hospital and you have a problem in, you know, getting enough people to donate blood and you have shortages in blood donations, how can you solve that problem by understanding why the problem is happening by going to the users. It may be something as simple as a fear of blood donation. It may be something as simple as access. People don't, it's not convenient for them. So when you learn how to understand where the problem lies and who are the stakeholders, who are the users, who are the people that can actually contribute to solving the problems, it's not you. You are not going to solve the problem on your own. And when I started learning about design thinking, I realized that a lot of the steps of design thinking, things like understanding a problem, defining what the problem really is after having understood the problem at a very deep level, thinking in a divergent mode, thinking of all the possibilities, which is something very similar to what medical doctors do in differential diagnosis, a divergent mode of thinking, and finally, zooming in on what the solution most likely is, so convergent thinking. And finally, iterative thinking, so the ability to move back and forth between different modes of thinking, to be able to think in a divergent way and then to zoom in in a convergent way and then to move back to the divergent mode without losing track of where you are in the problem-solving space. The impact of something like design thinking mindsets and toolkits is immense because you're working in spaces where humans are interacting with disease and with society and with the environment. It's an ecosystem. And in order to understand an ecosystem, you have to be able to see things like stakeholders and who's involved. It's not just the disease. It's the disease within a community. I mean, public health comes to mind as something in which design thinking can be very powerful. The problem with medical studies is that it, you need to have the content. You need to be able to master content, but you also need to be able to synthesize that content in a meaningful way. And a design thinking can really help with that. Um, so for first year and second year students, I would say to resist the urge to just simply memorize information and regurgitate it on an exam paper, but to try and make meaning of how this knowledge can connect to other areas of their studies. The problem with medical studies, at least in my experience, is that years ago there were silos of the disciplines or the sub-specialties within medicine. Now there's a more integrative approach to studying medicine in which you study disease from different perspectives, the physiology, the anatomy, the biochemistry of the disease and that helps students understand things at a deeper level because they can make meaning of it. But if they're just studying pure anatomy, pure biochemistry, pure physiology, it's very difficult to make those connections. So it makes you wonder, do you use divergent thinking currently when you are studying at home or even in class? Do you know how to switch from convergent and divergent thinking back and forth depending on the complexity of the material or depending on the need, what answer you're trying to actually solve. These topics are very interesting and something that we generally don't even have the vocabulary for, let alone are able to think about when we're actually doing our study sessions. So for a full episodes list of all the interviews discussed in this section, please do make sure to go to freemeded.org slash podcasts 
The respective podcast episodes for the interviews above are 27 with Abby Marks Beal, 28 with Jared Cooney Horvath, 16 with Wendell Cole, and 37 with Hoda Mustafa. In the next section, we'll begin to cover a few tips and tricks to working with other students, working with our classmates, working in a group. So if you call from the earlier segment with Howard Berg, he described how students can form groups and divide the responsibilities, such as one person taking a particular topic or name or date category and another student taking one of the other categories. And then each chapter, the students can switch so you don't get too burnt out doing the same thing every time. This makes sure that everyone participates equally and you get through the material five times faster, assuming you have a group of five. But there are more things that you can do with group studies such as elaborating on topics. For this section, we'll let Dr. Megan Samaraki of the Learning Scientist podcast take over. So elaboration is this idea that we can sort of keep adding things or keep making connections or describe and explain concepts. So elaboration can mean a lot of different things. And I, my dissertation was actually on elaboration where I went through and was looking at all these definitions. And I'm convinced that elaboration is too broad a concept to be overly useful. But specifically, this idea of elaborative interrogation is one that fits within educational settings, and we have some evidence to suggest that 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 one works quite well. Elaborative interrogation is basically asking yourself how and why questions, like how and why things work, and then trying to find the answers to those questions. So it's it's just questioning. So if you are learning about enzymes, let's say, I don't know if that's something that you might attack. And so if you are learning about enzymes, you might ask a number of questions like, well, well, why do we need different types of enzymes? And how many, you know, how are the different types of enzymes working together? I, you can tell I don't know anything about enzymes. Different information about pHs, how they might be used. But basically, you just keep probing and asking these how and why questions and then trying to find the answers. And if you're working with peers, you can work together to describe and explain. And it basically helps you to develop a deeper understanding understanding of what it is that you're trying to learn. And you can see that ultimately you could work your way up to being able to describe and explain how different concepts work with one another from memory, which would be retrieval practice. So we can see how elaborative interrogation in a group setting can allow us to ask each other questions and try to answer them or at least point out bits of our knowledge and also notice the gaps in our current knowledge. So this type of group setting for this study technique for this evidence-based technique can be very useful in your academic studies. This is only one of the evidence-based techniques that the learning scientists cover and that we try to cover in this podcast as well. The others will come up later. And for the full interview with Dr. Megan Samaraki, check out episode 7 at freemeded.org slash podcasts. Before we move on to the next section of note-taking, here's a quick quote by Wendell Cole, who also authored the Med School Survival Kit. Teach it to somebody else. Because then once you can process it in your head and you've learned to process the information and now you're teaching somebody else that information, number one, it tests to see if you really know the subject. And number two, it helps solidify it even more because you have to know what you're talking about in order to teach somebody else. So, you know, if you're studying with a group of people, you know, you have to there and go through in-depth, everything about that subject, you know, no notes. Well, you try to do it for no notes at first, but that's another one of the 
ways where you jog your memory and you have to think about it and process it and help somebody else understand it. And that'll solidify it in your head even quicker. Of course, we see these types of concepts mentioned all the time. Many of us have heard of the see one, do one, teach one mentality. And that's basically what Dr. Cole is talking about right here. If you can teach someone else the material, then you must know it pretty well. Or if you attempt to teach someone and you realize you're getting stuck, you know that you have some weak points that you can work on in the future. If you don't feel comfortable talking to another student about this, well, talk to your dog, talk to a plant, talk to the wall. It doesn't really matter who you're discussing with because it is testing yourself, your recall, in an audible fashion. You can then use these weak points that you've noticed to make flashcards and other study materials. And then if you do feel comfortable enough to do it in a group setting, you can use the elaborative interrogation on each other and question each other and get a deeper understanding of the material. This is the strongest point of group settings, when they're scheduled properly. Of course, we do cover an entire section of our book, Read This Before Medical School, discussing how to properly set up a group section. If you'd like more information on that, you can check out the past episodes where we did a miniseries review of the book. That several-part miniseries can be found back in around episode 32 to 36, skipping in between there. So now that we kind of know how to set up an efficient environment to some degree, we have some tips on working with others if we decide to do that, using elaborative interrogation, defining our purpose. Why are we studying this material? Is it just for the next exam? Is it for the board exams later on? Is it for medical practice way later on? That's going to determine some of the skills we might want to use and strategies for short-term versus long-term remembering. Do we want to implement design thinking or are we currently doing that or how can we improve on it? Those are some of the topics we want to consider before going on to our next section, which is actually implementing some of the study techniques. And one of the first ones we're going to cover is just some simple note-taking skills. We often write notes in class and at home, but are we really doing them in the most efficient manner? Are we doing them in ways that are going to help us, or is it going to just give us the fallacy of competence, the fallacy of knowledge? For instance, instead of just writing handwritten notes, how about adding colors and themes and images and making them into mind maps? At least that's one skill that Dr. Yifan of Osmosis recommends. The traditional mind map doesn't really have a lot of images. Like it's a circle with the main idea and then you have branches with sub ideas, right? In that case, the visual component comes in like you can use different colors or different size arrows to imply like this is the important information with a larger arrow or the less important information with a smaller arrow or some kind of visual cue like that. But drawing anything isn't really necessary. All the colors and all of the different uh, visual components are there to help you encode and then get you invested in what you're drawing. Because when you're drawing the arrow, you're kind of comparing the two different subjects, right? Like if I want to make this a red arrow, there's got to be a reason behind it, right? Or if I want to make this a bigger arrow, you're saying, oh, this information is important or these two informations are related in a certain way that I want to use this particular color. You see, it's the process of making it that's forcing you to think behind the hierarchy and the relationship between the different bubbles. We will later discuss a little more in depth about mind maps and how to set them up and the proper technique because there are a lot of misconceptions about them. And if you're very familiar with them, 
you might disagree with some of the statements that were just mentioned, but we'll return to those in a later section. Next, I want to hear from Ryan Orwig of StatMed Learning and his thoughts on mind maps for your study notes. He also thinks they're very useful in certain scenarios. So let's see what he thinks. Well, the first thing I would jump on is mind mapping. Now, depending on what we mean by mind mapping, I, I, but if it's mind mapping with words and details written out, I hate mind maps. I, I, I will never teach them. If I think if it works for somebody, it works. But in, let me tell you why. And this is a tip, I guess, right? A mind map is basically recopying all of the details. Like, it has structure and details, and you're writing it all down. It's blind copying. You're just doing all of this laborious work to recopy stuff, which you can likely do largely on autopilot. This idea that I'm rewriting it or retyping it is giving me value. It's not. Or if it is, it's just not, it's not best practice. The sheer volume and scope of medicine, of med school, of boards, trying to mind map that stuff is just a waste of time. Now, if you wanted to write out the structure without the details, which sounds counterintuitive, then maybe you're on something. This is what we. This is how I would do it. I would take like that hierarchical structure, and I've got a lecture on chromosome abnormalities, chapter on chromosome abnormalities. You don't just the structure isn't just the, the, the five main categories. It's like all the way down to the details within the framework of it. Okay, I've got under aneuploidy, you've got Down syndrome, Prater Willy, whatever the other one is, right? And then like what then if they're wanting to know like what's the occurrence, what's the recurrence or recurrence risk, what are the signs and symptoms, what what are like treatment options, those are subcategories. And then you should be using that to self-test and check back against the source. I always find it fascinating to see how different practitioners and different instructors use or don't use certain techniques for studying. Some really praise mind maps, and some, as you just heard, don't really like them so much or only like them for certain types of studying. I think it really comes down to you. Does it work for you? Does your mind work in a way that this creative process helps you? Rewriting it can act as a separate recall, which we can utilize for space repetition. The color coding and the location base of these materials that we write in a mind map can help us remember things. We've all had instances where we remember something on the left side of our notepad or right side, but not the reverse. Or maybe the top part of a page and the bottom part. We know this is over here, but we just can't remember what it is. This could be a technique to implement in that situation. But I think the main thing that Ryan was really trying to get at is not to use mind maps for everything. Like most mnemonics, you want to pick and choose when to use them because they do require a little bit more time to create and utilizing that much time to recreate everything in a mind map or a memory palace is probably not going to be that efficient. I recommend people start with the basics, with a general outline, and you can always go back and add more details later on if you decide to. So if we don't want to take the mnemonics route and draw out mind maps, what are some other note-taking techniques that we can use? Joining us again is Abby Marks-Beal, and her educational experiences suggest that these types of note-taking techniques are really, really effective.
uh, note-taking is probably the most important thing I think that learners need to do. And notes are typically the best when you know you have to go back and review, which probably for medical students is like almost everything. But you don't need to take notes on everything. Having a highlighter in your hand all the time is not always efficient if you're not highlighting the best things. So like when I teach speed reading, I talk about reading just keywords or phrases. And a keyword is usually one that is like three letters in length or longer that has carries meaning of a sentence. And so when you highlight a sentence, you want to make sure that you're highlighting the bigger, most important words, not everything. Because when you highlight everything, when you go back to it later on, two weeks, three weeks later, you're looking at it going, why did I highlight that? You know, you want to be really clear why you're highlighting that piece. So highlighting is one way of taking notes. However, if you're highlighting like 75% or more of your page, that's really not effective. And that's usually because you're unfamiliar with the material and you need it all. And so there's, a, I think, better ways of doing it. Kind of a stopgap measure would be to like take a paragraph and take a pen or pencil, or if it's something you can't write in, put a post-it note there and summarize the paragraph you know, in the margin. So you could do margin notes that way. So highlighting and or margin notes is is good. But what I like the most, and this is what I did when I when I was in college, I took a psychology course and it was to me foreign. It was not something I, I really understood. And so what I did was every chapter I took a look, and this is also a reading strategy, is to know that every textbook chapter starts from an outline. Anyone who writes a textbook, I've written three of them, I know you have to have an outline. And so then when I write it or when whoever you're reading has written it, it's a fleshed out outline. And so if you first can find the writer's outline and then you're going to take notes, basically taking what they fleshed out and condensing it back into an outline, that is very helpful. And the way that I like to tell people or share with people how to do it is using the Cornell method of note taking. similar to what Howard Bird said earlier about taking the main points, the main topics or subheadings in a textbook and utilizing that as an outline and kind of goes back to our S3R method. So how do we utilize Cornell note cards? How do we utilize this Cornell method? you know, this would be helpful. You can Google the Cornell method. And so it was created at Cornell University in 1955. One of the professors there basically was worried why these freshmen who came in with great SAT scores and very good grades were having a really hard time passing their courses in their first semesters. And so it wasn't because they weren't in class. They were. It wasn't because they didn't do the homework they did. But what they weren't doing is they weren't taking good notes. And so he created this method. And it's it's something I use all the time. So I'm going to describe it and hope that the visual can come through and what I'm going to describe. So you take a regular, you know, eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper that's lined, you know, college lined. However, if you can move that left-hand margin or create your own, that left-hand margin is usually just about an inch, add two more inches and put a ruler down so that you now have three inches on the left and the rest is on the right. So the left-hand three-inch margin is going to be what's called the recall column, R-E-C-A-L-L, the recall column, and the right-hand side is the body of your notes. So on the left side is where you're going to put main ideas. You're going to put vocabulary term. You want to put a date. You want to put a name. You want to put a concept, a formula. And on the right side across from it is going to be the explanation of what you put on the left. 
So one of the things I also suggest is that if you have a brand new topic, you're not familiar with it, a new area that you're learning, that you take these textbook chapters. And like you said, there's a lot that's already bolded for you. A lot of times it's key terms is to create your own key term list. It's almost like making flashcards, but you do it on this paper. I call it the Cornell paper, the three inch margin rule paper. And you put your vocabulary word on the left and you put your definition in your own words, in your own words on the right. Get rid of superfluous stuff like what does it really mean to you? Not what does the book tell you it says, but what does it really mean? And then you have this nice list already that you've created. So the left hand has vocabulary, right hand has the definition. And then when it's time to study it, you cover up the right hand side of the paper and you look at the vocabulary word and you try to come up with the definition. And so it, it gives you a way to study and you can also cover the left-hand side, look at the definition and say, what is that? And so it helps to kind of give you a way to put it all in one place so remember and then what she study says there, it from it. These are basically flashcards and that can be very useful in the upcoming section on flashcards. So keep that in mind. But first, what does the creator of Revit Up Reading think about mind maps? Now, those who are more creative on the right brain side, they can add pictures, they can draw things in their notes, or they could even go so far as doing something called mind mapping. And mind mapping is not for everyone, but it can be very useful. Like if you're trying to follow a professor that is just scattered, where they start in one area, then they, they go to A, then they go to B, then they go to D, then they go to Z, and then they come back to A. And you're going, I don't have more room here to write my notes. Like, And so to follow a professor like that using something called mind mapping, but it's basically taking a main idea in the middle, like the topic of the class for the day. And then you create like rays of sunshine or spider legs, however you want to look at it. And you just kind of put notes according to where the professor goes. And it's very free flowing. You can put colors to it. You can put pictures to it. Not everybody can follow that or does follow that, but some people are very right brain and they, they like that Remember as an option. that learning strategies are tools and not every tool is going to be right for every project. And not every tool is going to work for every person. So finding the ones that work well for you is the point of these interviews, this podcast, the book. Everything we do is to give you the tools necessary to exceed your normal study skills and to succeed in your academic goals. Now, I want to cover flashcards, but I do have a mini-series planned for the near future, so we won't go into great detail about how to set those up. Plus, we're getting a little late in the episode as it is. Here are a couple of quick tips from Dr. David Lawson, Med School 2.0. So if I'm looking at the investment of my time and energy and the return on investment, low on the priority list is the grades on my exams the first two years. And so if I study board resources for cardiology, um, I'm going to do good enough on the cardiology system exam. I'm not going to do as good as if I studied the lecture notes primarily. However, I'm going to be much more prepared for the boards. The screenshot method of making flashcards was so much faster than typing. So I started doing that and I screenshot a paragraph of text without really reading it into the answer part of a flashcard. You know, do the entire chapter, make flashcards, which only took about 10 minutes. And then I would study them one at a time. And by that, I mean, I would just read that paragraph. And while I read it, 
I would type customized questions and just shorthand questions in the top part of the flashcard. So definition of cardiomyopathy or types of cardiomyopathy. And the key part there, which is different than using someone else's flashcard deck, is the way each of our brains are wired is really unique. And the knowledge gaps are going to be different from all of us. So if I use someone else's flashcards, it's going to have words written in the way that are unique to that person's brain, which may or may not overlap with what I really need to learn and the way I think about it and trigger So here the we go again, practice. another mention of how important it is to create your own materials. Using pre-made materials will save you a lot of time, but is it going to be effective? Are those cards going to be meaningful to you and test you on the points that you are weak in? A quick technique like this, duplicating the card where you've got a screenshot in the back, can make it really easy to make multiple cards about each screenshot you've taken. So it doesn't have to take a lot of time and is much more effective because it's personalized to you and your needs. And here are some tips that you can also use later on, let's say during residency. Using a digital voice recorder in the car or when I was running, I would listen to lectures, board prep courses, and there's even an app called Pocket on the iPhone at least that will do voice to text of web pages. So it would read it to me when I'm running, biking, or in the car. And so I would just listen, pause, dictate any notes, and then I would send those notes through Odesk for someone who would make Anki cards for me. I would send them the voice file and then they would send back it dictated, you know, typed out. You might out not have Anki the resources cards. right now to hire a freelancer on one of these freelance networks such as Upwork or Fiverr now that Odesk is gone. But could you imagine how much time that could save? And you might be able to find a good deal. For a few dollars, you've potentially saved hours on creating these cards, and they're still personalized to your needs. All right, so now we've covered quite a bit of material, and that's actually only halfway through today's script. But it looks like I'm going to have to break these into more parts than I originally thought. There's still a lot of material we have to cover, a lot of good highlights I want to get through to all of you. So let's recap real quick. What are some of the key points that we have covered today? Some of them, such as time efficiency, have been mentioned several times from David Larson, from Howard Berg, and a few other of our guests. Realizing that old study strategies might not work so well for us anymore, and knowing what the new strategies that are more efficient for your studies might be, can go a long way. We also need to know how to prepare for our study schedules and prepare for even the daily studies that we might want to conduct. I hear in a lot of productivity podcasts and material that for every 10 minutes that you spend planning, you save 90 minutes of actual efficiency. That way you don't have to worry about what comes next. You already know. You have a plan. You have the step after that. You have the step after that already set, written down, something to assess yourself and monitor and make sure you're keeping on track. We can also think about using these metacognitive strategies that were mentioned by Jared Cooney Horvath and divergent and convergent thinking from Hoda Mustafa. We can consider elaborative interrogation as an individual or in a group setting, how to attack group study sessions to get the most out of them to maximize that time. We've gone over some different views on mind maps and note-taking and Cornell notes. 
And we've just briefly touched on flashcard techniques, and there'll be a lot more of these to come as well. So in the next episode, we're going to cover some of the topics that we didn't get to in this episode, such as the very scientifically backed learning strategies and really go into spaced rehearsal and some common mistakes in the topics we've covered today and will cover in the next episode. So I do hope you will stay tuned and make sure to subscribe to the show if you haven't done so yet. We don't want you to miss this topic. We don't want you to wait several weeks or even months before you come across it because all of that time is now time lost that you could have been implementing these stronger strategies. For a complete list of our episodes, you can always go to freemeded.org slash podcast. And of course, we'll have a lot of information in the show notes for this episode. One last thing I did want to mention is the tutoring and consulting services that I now offer. So if you are familiar with some of these topics, but you've hit a roadblock and you want to take your skills to the next level, whether it be these study skills or mnemonics training, feel free to go to freemeded.org slash tutoring and sign up for your time slot. That's freemeded.org slash tutoring. Have a great rest of the week, and I'll see you in the next episode.